Partially Examined Life precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Dylan Casey, here with the precognition edition of our upcoming episode on Karl Popper. We'll be reading the first three pieces in his collection of lectures and essays titled Conjectures and Refutations, which was first published in 1963. The essays are On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance, Science, Conjectures and Refutations, and The Nature of Philosophical Problems and Their Roots in Science. Karl Popper was a 20th century philosopher, born in Vienna in 1902 and dying in 1994. He was educated at the University of Vienna and left in 1937 for the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, where he stayed for the duration of World War II. In 1946, he moved to teach at the University of London School of Economics and stayed there until retiring in 1969, though he remained an active writer, broadcaster, and lecturer until his death. Popper's big book in the philosophy of science is The Logic of Scientific Discovery, published in 1959. Throughout his career, he maintained an abiding interest in social and political philosophy, embodied in his critique of totalitarianism, The Open Society and Its Enemies, published in 1945. However, he didn't generally keep these in separate intellectual boxes. The intertwining of the philosophy of science and political philosophy runs through even the three essays we have for us here. On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance starts with an extended set of historical reflections, turning to articulating his own views in section 13. His main goal in the historical portion is to establish that Socrates, Aristotle, Bacon, Descartes, and others hold an essentially common view of the source of knowledge, that it boils down to divine authority of one sort or another. Popper's argument puts Socrates as the inventor of induction, contra Bacon and Descartes, and that all of them rely on what he terms an epistemological optimism, that man can discern the truth and acquire knowledge. Whatever the truth is, man is capable of perceiving it when it is in front of him, and capable of recognizing it when it is unveiled. Popper contrasts this with epistemological pessimism, the contention that man cannot discern the truth at all. While there are certain advantages to epistemological optimism, namely that it is partly responsible for the founding of liberalism. In the end, Popper considers both to be paths towards totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Epistemological pessimism, because there is not objective discernible truth, thus the political choice is between tradition and chaos. Read Hobbes and the Plato of the Republic here. Epistemological optimism, because it elevates the authority of the senses, a la Bacon, or of the intellect, a la Descartes, both of which are mistaken, and both of which inevitably become authoritarian in a political system. For Popper, the problem in both cases is a kind of fetishizing of certainty, origins, and sources, where the question is always, what can I know for certain, with the follow-up of trying to make sure that something, generally science, sits on this ground. Such ground always involves getting to the proper sources of things, those sources getting us to truth and certainty, be it via intellect or observation. Popper's rejoinder is the doctrine of fallibility. Popper articulates this in section 10 of the essay, saying, This doctrine implies that we may seek for truth, for objective truth, 
though more often than not we may miss it by a wide margin. And it implies that if we respect truth, we must search for it by persistently searching for our errors, by rational criticism and self-criticism. Rational criticism becomes the positive counterpoint to the doctrine of fallibility because, while we cannot establish truth through a process of verification and logical consistency, we can establish falsehood through a process of falsifying predictions with empirical tests and establishing logical inconsistency. Popper says, Clarity and distinctness are not criteria for truth, but such things as obscurity or confusion may indicate error. Simple coherence cannot establish truth, but incoherence and inconsistency do establish falsehood. In the end, Popper's epistemological account is evolutionary. Knowledge proceeds by solving problems via trial and error, and that's the best we can do. He provides a self-summary of his positions in the last two sections of the chapter, which, if you want to just read what he himself thinks without the quite interesting historical inquiry, you can skip to. His ten points are these. 1. There are no ultimate sources of knowledge. 2. The proper epistemological question is not one about sources, rather, we ask whether the assertion made is true, that is to say, whether it agrees with the facts. 3. In connection with the above examination, all kinds of arguments may be relevant. 4. Quantitatively and qualitatively, by far the most important source of our knowledge, apart from inborn knowledge, is tradition. 5. Anti-traditionalism is futile, but should not be held to support a traditionalist attitude. Every bit of our traditional knowledge is open to critical examination and may be overthrown. 6. The advance of knowledge consists mainly in the modification of earlier knowledge. 7. Pessimistic and optimistic epistemologies are about equally mistaken. There is no criterion of truth at our disposal. 8. Neither observation nor reason is an authority. 9. Although clarity is valuable in itself, exactness or precision is not. There can be no point in trying to be more precise than our problem demands. 10. Every solution of a problem raises new unsolved problems. Popper concludes the introductory chapter with the following call. What we should do, I suggest, is to give up the idea of ultimate sources of knowledge and admit that all knowledge is human, that it is mixed with our errors, our prejudices, our dreams, and our hopes, that all we can do is to grope for truth even though it is beyond our reach. We may admit that our groping is often inspired, but we must be on our guard against the belief, however deeply felt, that our inspiration carries any authority, divine or otherwise. If we thus admit that there is no authority beyond the reach of criticism to be found within the whole province of our knowledge, however far it may have penetrated into the unknown, then we can retain, without danger, the idea that truth is beyond human authority, and we must retain it. For without this idea, there can be no objective standards of inquiry, no criticism of our conjectures, no groping for the unknown, no quest for knowledge. The second essay, Science, Conjectures, and Refutations, details Popper's most famous claims about the nature of science and the primacy of falsifiability over verification in understanding what constitutes science. 
He begins with a personal history and his attempts as a young man to distinguish the sciences of Marx's history, Freud and Adler's psychology, and Einstein's general relativity. In the end, Popper concludes the first three are pseudosciences because they do not allow for the possibility of falsification, unlike Einstein's general theory of relativity. The theories of Marx, Freud, and Adler have the common problem of finding verification and confirmation in all quarters, and that there exist no claims from any of them which could be tested so as to understand where the theory applies and where it doesn't apply. Like astrology, they aren't falsifiable. For Popper, Einstein's theory is a canonical example of a good scientific theory in that risky predictions are made, in this case, regarding the angle of declination of starlight around the sun, which, if not in agreement with absurd facts, would render the theory wrong. Most of the essay is an extended exploration of the problem of induction and the role of observation. In the end, Popper considers observation to be selective itself, not a straightforward presentation of the facts, contra-empiricism, and induction, even human induction, via similitude of repeated events, doesn't provide a sound foundation for the activity of science, nor of knowledge. We are again brought back to the doctrine of fallibility and the fundamental importance of the critical attitude in regards to establishing and growing our knowledge. In this chapter, Popper really takes on the question of what makes something a science and what doesn't. This is an old fight, one that Kant takes up, having been roused from his dogmatic slumber by Hume's critiques of science. Popper calls this problem the problem of demarcation and links it directly with the problem of induction. The solution to both problems ends up being his doctrine of fallibility. We can solve the problem of induction and establish the distinction between science and pseudoscience by adopting the doctrine of fallibility and employing our critical attitude. The third essay, The Nature of Philosophical Problems and Their Roots in Science, takes as its starting point Wittgenstein's contention that there are no philosophical problems per se, and joins it up with a criticism of the distinction between scientific problems and philosophical problems. Here, he accuses Wittgenstein of being a certainty fetishist, and, as a way of partly agreeing with Wittgenstein's criticisms of philosophy, says, Every philosophy, and especially every philosophical school, is liable to degenerate in such a way that its problems become practically indistinguishable from pseudo-problems, and its can't, accordingly, practically indistinguishable from meaningless babble. This is a consequence of philosophical inbreeding. Popper continues, Genuine philosophical problems are always rooted in urgent problems outside of philosophy, and they die if these roots decay. What matters is not methods or techniques, but a sensitivity to problems and a consuming passion for them, or, as the Greeks said, the gift of wonder. Popper spends the essay going through numerous examples to show two things. First, that there are indeed philosophical problems, and second, that those problems generally have their roots in scientific problems. His intellectual tour goes through the rational understanding of change in Zeno and Aristotle. Plato's roots in Pythagorean number-loving, and a detailed account of how the discovery of the irrationals, particularly the square root of two, was a solution to a philosophical problem, not a merely mathematical one. Speaking of Parmenides, Popper says in section 6, 
His theories were the beginning of a long series of such systems of physical theories, each of which was an improvement on its predecessor. As a rule, the improvement was found necessary because it was realized that the earlier system was falsified by certain facts of experience. Such an empirical refutation of the consequences of a deductive system leads to efforts at its reconstruction and thus to a new and improved theory, which as a rule clearly bears the mark of its ancestry, of the older theory as well as the refuting experience. So that's the quick rundown. I recommend that you read the essays for yourself. Popper's a pretty decent writer, clear and generally to the point, with a bit of vim and verve here and there for good measure. I've also failed to do justice to his consistent concern for both the philosophy of science and political philosophy, which, by itself, is worth reading and thinking about. Thanks for listening.